Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 36, Hellenistic Cities, Colonization, Urbanization, and Hellenization. Sometime in the early 3rd century BC, a man named Clearchus of Soli, a philosopher and author of a number of lost works, had decided to take a journey. From what we can guess, he had probably departed from the eastern Mediterranean, perhaps from his home on the island of Cyprus. From there, he likely traveled by overland route, passing through Asia Minor or the Levant into Mesopotamia and through the Iranian heartland, before ending in his final destination at the city we know as Ai Khanum, located along the Amu Darya River in modern Afghanistan, then known as the province of Bactri in the Seleucid Empire. We believe this to be the case, because of an inscription dedicated by Clearchus listing the Delphic Maxims, a series of aphorisms and sayings attributed to the Oracle of Delphi. What is remarkable about this is how despite being separated by a distance of approximately 2,500 miles, the experiences of Clearchus on each end of the journey would have been surprisingly consistent, thanks to one of the defining and longest-lasting of the legacies of the Hellenistic Age, the city. Of course, urban civilization was no stranger in the lands of Nineveh, Babylon, Memphis, and Takshila. But Clearchus's venture from one end of the map of the Hellenistic world to the other would have certainly involved him stopping along at least one of the major cities like Pergamon and Antioch. In addition to one of the many smaller settlements lining the landscape like nodes in a neural network. Everywhere he went, Clearchus would have seen the same hallmarks. A gymnasium, the bustling agora a layout planned upon a rectangular grid pattern. Of course, differences would inevitably arise based upon the location, but these cities, founded by the successors of Alexander the Great and their descendants, would be part of the collective idea known as a Hellenistic city, an institution that would be one of the great legacies that would long outlive their founding dynasties. In this episode, we will be exploring the idea of the Hellenistic city, such as why they were founded, what defined them as Hellenistic, and what are the social, economic, political, and cultural consequences of their creation. This is not a complete coverage of all of the cities in the Hellenistic world, but rather a focus on the planned settlements built during the period, and especially in regards to the likes of Alexandria, Antioch, and Pergamon. Let us start with a bit of historical context. The notion of urbanization and the founding of cities was long known to both the Greek world and the civilizations of Egypt, the Near East, and India. To the Greeks in particular, the city was an essential component of Greekness and Greek civic life. Business, politics, and religious festivals were all centralized within the polis, a term that is roughly translated as city-state. Polis is just one of those words that is bandied about for our convenience, but city-state is not really the best choice. It could mean a number of things, like the city itself, the city and the countryside, or some sort of combination and plus others. To live in a polis under a rule of law was one of the requirements to be seen as civilized, at least in the eyes of the Greeks. But what did the Greeks define as a city? If we are to look at some of the writings from the period, Pausanias speaks dismissively of the Phocians who lived in the city of Panopius. Quote, if one can give the name of city to those who possess no government offices, no gymnasium, no theater, no marketplace, no water descending to a fountain, but live in bare shelters, 
just like mountain cabins. End quote. Speaking less about the material aspects of a city, the Greek orator Diochristostome acknowledges the standards of Pausanias, but states, quote, Do you imagine there is any advantage in the market or theater or gymnasia or colonnade or wealth for men who are at variance? These are not things which make a city beautiful, but rather self-control, friendship, mutual trust. End quote. The traditions of colonization and civic pride would emerge during the Greek Dark Ages, as colonists would spread across the Mediterranean from southern France and Massilia to along the shores of Asia Minor. City-states like Athens, Syracuse, and Corinth were among the premier examples of metropolises in the Greek world during the Classical period, though Sparta is notably absent as even Thucydides thought it was rather underwhelming in terms of monuments and grandeur. In the world outside of Greece, places such as Egypt or the Near East, the traditions of urban civilization had been around far longer, stretching back into the earliest settlements at Memphis or Uruk and Sumer. True, the palace complexes of the Mycenaeans and Minoans were magnificent, but the collapse of the Late Bronze Age had hit the Greek peninsula far harder than the Egyptians or Near Eastern powers, and their sense of urban continuity was just not as strong. On the other hand, the Assyrian capital of Nineveh had reached a population size well over 120,000 in the 7th century, and the Persian Empire had a number of wonderfully constructed cities like Persepolis and Susa. Egypt, too, was a source of fascination to Greek travelers, who saw the great temples and monuments of the likes of the Colossi of Memnon. It was under Alexander the Great that city foundation and the origins of Hellenistic city would really reach a new level. It's quoted by Plutarch that Alexander had founded some 70 cities during his conquest of the Persian Empire, most famously that of Alexandria in Egypt. This needs some clarification, because it doesn't mean that he founded 70 cities on the scale of Alexandria. Most were smaller settlements for his veterans and colonists designed to strengthen his control over his newly acquired territories, and there are maybe 20 we can name as being his direct creation. But upon his death and the subsequent partitioning of the empire, many of Alexander's successors and self-proclaimed kings began to emulate the ruler and place their own dynastic stamps upon the spear-one land they squatted upon. City-building projects sprung up across the Hellenistic world, with more famous ones like Seleucia on the Tigris and Antioch, and lesser-known ones like Antigonea, Lysimachia, and Laodicea. Unlike the cities of the Greek mainland, the cities founded by the Macedonian kings were generally named not after deities or gods, as was the case for cities like Athens. Instead, they bore dynastic names as a way to add to the splendor of the kings who ordered their construction, and in order to broadcast that this land belonged to this particular ruler. It wasn't even strictly limited to kings, as many royal women and queens would either have cities named after them in their honor, or upon their own initiative. So, at this point, we are full swing into the Hellenistic Age, and we want to trace the development of a city. There's a bit of a paradox, because cities are not born as cities for the most part, they tend to grow organically from a smaller-sized colony or settlement. But how do we define something as being a city, as opposed to being a town, a village, or even the collection of towns and villages? Scholars today have a tough time debating on the exact criteria that makes a city a city. I imagine if I asked you what defines a city, many answers probably fall somewhere along the lines of, well, if you would see it, you would know it. A few standards have been put forward as options. 
Generally, they have a large population size, though this is a matter of relativity, because my hometown of 30,000 is only technically considered a village when compared to neighboring cities like Chicago, whereas in the ancient world, 30,000 is nothing to sneeze at. In addition, they have some sort of centralized authority, which either includes a palace, council house, or something along those lines that has a degree of administration to manage the inner workings of the city. There's also specialized function, which means that the settlement has a range of diverse activities, such as a center for crafting or a marketplace, portions of a city that you can distinctly point out as having a particular purpose. This is all just a rough outline on a much bigger debate, and I'll be drawing from the locations with the best evidence, i.e. the capital and major cities like Alexandria and Antioch, so there's no musing on whether they're actually cities or not, but I felt it was appropriate to at least acknowledge and lay down some basic ground rules. So now that we have a rough idea of what a city is, the question becomes, why would a new city need to be created? Well, with the conquest of the Persian Empire, the Macedonian kings now found themselves governing regions and lands that had a native tradition of urbanization stretching back hundreds of years. Many of these regions had established policies and procedures, and were not as willing to accept foreign rule or too heavy of a hand if the kings tried imposing their will onto the local administration, nobility, or priesthoods. This wasn't exclusively a problem when it came to non-Greek peoples, as many Hellenic cities like Athens, Sparta, Ephesus, and others were not as willing to accept domination by the Macedonian dynasties, and care had to be taken to tread lightly around them, even if they had lost much of their political power. In conjunction, the kings largely established their rule by way of military might, and thus maintaining some sort of armed force was necessary, leading to two problems. One how to maintain control over a region, and two, how to ensure a steady supply of soldiery. Well, the answer for these rulers was to found brand new cities. The benefits were apparent. You could create a well-organized and efficiently designed city that, you could, that could impose your dynastic will upon the landscape, superseding older and more established settlements while adding to the prestige of your royal house thanks to its economic, cultural, or political superiority. These cities would be dependent on royal patronage, and thus be a more amenable to being subject to administration, taxation, and other heavier burdens that the established cities would otherwise be more hostile towards. It was much more preferable to be at peace with your cities than at war, so having some sort of mutually beneficial partnership was desired over anything else. Simultaneously, they provided an opportunity to establish colonies for troops under your own command, as you can reward service with plots of land, which would become known as the clerarchy system, and well established in places like Ptolemaic Egypt. This would mean both a steady supply of soldiers, and increased defense due to strategic positioning, as can be seen in the cities and military colonies of the no-man's land that is Coalis Syria. It was also just a thing that kings did, because the prosperity and prestige of the cities would reflect on the status of the ruler who founded it, and attract others to flock to your banner and pay. The founding of many of the greatest cities, such as Alexandria or Seleucia on the Tigris, often have some sort of religious or mythological element to them. In the case of Seleucia and Antioch, an eagle is said to have taken the meat offering by Seleucus I and deposited them in two separate locations to direct the king's building projects. In reality, these choices were more pragmatic. Cities located at positions ideal for the construction of harbors, 
proximity towards fresh water supplies, defensive positioning, and even the ability to catch a cool breeze were all considered. Sacrifices had to be made here and there, as many of these locations, including Antioch, were built atop major fault lines that resulted in considerable amounts of damage by earthquakes, not unlike the construction of modern-day San Francisco. The story of Alexander's initial founding of Alexandria in Egypt is recounted by many authors, and once the king decided the area was perfectly suitable for habitation, the accompanying architects measured out and laid out the city grid using barley to mark their progress, and walked the outline of the city to look for imperfections, but the story also suggests chalk of some kind being used. Speaking of grids, Virtually all cities founded during the Hellenistic period were designed around the so-called Hippodamian plan, a grid pattern that had the streets crossing each other to form 90-degree angles. It has been traditionally linked back to the Greek Hippodamus of Miletus in the 5th century as the originator, though this is unlikely given that some cities in the Near East and Egypt have been arranged in such a pattern many centuries prior. The Hippodamian plan is very efficient in its design, usually arranged in a rectangular shape that allowed for the easy construction of city walls, causeways, and roads that facilitated the speedy movement of human traffic. But to imply that it is universally identical is incorrect. Depending upon the landscape of the region, it could be unfavorable or downright impossible to build on a rectangular grid. One look at the ruins of Pergamon along the mesa it rests upon should tell you that immediately, but the Hippodamian plan can be applied to shapes that are more circular or oblong in origin, and the grid lines were always straight. The width of the roads were often designed in such a way as to be relatively consistent, but depending upon the needs of the city, they could be adjusted, such as the Canopic Way, the large 100-foot thoroughfare that bisected Alexandria from east to west, which allowed for great parades such as Ptolemy II's Grand Procession. This grid can be narrowed down to such a level that as to specifically set the limits of the blocks. For instance, the architect Dinocrates organized Alexandria's blocks to be 300 by 150 feet. This system remains in use today, as most major cities in North America, such as New York, are founded on similar principles. So we have our effective layout of the city, and we can assume the city is constructed over a period of several years. Effectively, there are a number of parts of the city. There is the urban center known as the Asti, where the bulk of political, religious, and economic activities took place. Surrounding the urban center would be the Kora, which would be the extension of the polis that was made up of the countryside which held the orchards, farms, and residencies of many of the city dwellers. But given the often critical strategic role that some of these cities held, it would be impractical to not have constructed sturdy walls. The Hellenistic period was a time of great advancements in siege engineering, and the builders and architects needed to compensate with elaborate fortifications, mainly centered around creating a system of barriers and moats to prevent the besiegers from actually reaching the city walls, which were still more often than not built with stone with little pockets available to garrison soldiers. Though setting out a physical location is all said and good, the most critical thing to do when building your settlement is making sure you have an ample water supply, which existed primarily in the form of drains and cisterns. While the famous stone aqueducts would not arrive until the conquest by the Romans, the Hellenistic system utilized clay pipes to bring freshwater supplies into the city from distant locations. In the case of Pergamon, a large pipe aqueduct stretching from 15 kilometers away in the mountains was constructed under the orders of Attalus I, and several others were built reaching 20 to 45 kilometers in length. 
One of the key buildings of any Hellenistic city is the Agora, which literally translates to gathering place. In classical Greece, this was where all political matters were discussed, where Athenian citizens would assemble to cast their votes, debate on issues, or hear rhetoric from the local politicians. With the decidedly more autocratic style of Hellenistic kingship, the Agora lost much of its political teeth and instead developed into an almost exclusively commercial center. The Agora was rectangular in shape, distinguished by the presence of two rows of large columns along the front façade, which supported an awning or a roof, collectively known as a stoa. The stoa is essentially a covered walkway, giving people the opportunity to escape from the heat of the sun while still remaining outside, and the columns could be made of expensive materials such as marble, and thus were often built through the patronage of the extremely wealthy or Hellenistic rulers. One of these stoas has been reconstructed in Athens during the 1950s, based upon the Athenian stoa gifted to the city by the king Attalus II of Pergamon. In the Agora, you could walk among the crowd, browsing the stalls which filled the spaces in between the columns occupied by traders, businessmen, and bankers alike, listening to them hawk their services and goods, not only in Greek, but also in local tongues such as Aramaic or Egyptian, depending upon the location. Business partners would meet to discuss new ventures and hearsay about political events both near and far, locals would gossip about their neighbors and relatives, and in some instances, philosophers would engage in dialogues about the nature of morality in the universe, as was the case of Zeno of Kittium, who founded the Stoic school of philosophy while in Athens. The word Stoic derived from Stoa, where Zeno would instruct his pupils. Care had to be taken by the agoronomoi, the overseers of the agora who had to watch out for unethical business practices, such as the use of unequal weights and measurements, along with making sure that the market itself did not become too rowdy and subject to thievery. Connected to, or placed in close proximity towards the city center, would be the gymnasium, or gymnasium. This was an institution that had long existed in the Greek world, and was where young boys and men up to the age of 30 would engage in both formal and physical education, such as wrestling, boxing, and track. This would all be done in the nude, and one of the perks of the gymnasium included the anointing of olive oil on the body, a luxury that could strain the city's expenditures, and access to communal baths. A close modern approximation to the gymnasium would be the YMCA, with the emphasis being placed upon young men, as women were not allowed. There were quite a number of regulations regarding the usage and benefits of the gymnasium. There existed a clear hierarchy when it came to whether you were a citizen or not, what age bracket you fell under, and your social standing. Any attempts to undercut this hierarchy could result in severe punishment by the head of the gymnasium, the gymnasiarch. In Pergamon, there was a particularly enormous gymnasium measuring out at roughly 30,000 square feet, and was divided into three parts that reflected the hierarchy. A highly decorated upper gymnasium for young adult men, a middle gymnasium for early teens and youths, and a lower one for small boys. The gymnasium was seen as a critical aspect in the education of young Greek men, its roots going back to the likes of Plato and other philosophers who saw a positive correlation between gymnastics and the constitution of its participants, and would serve as a Hellenizing institution wherever they emerged. When designing a city in the Hellenistic period, care must also be taken to satisfy the spiritual needs of your population. It was important for any ruler to pay homage to the gods both ancestral and local, partially because you want to keep as many of your citizens and subjects as happy as possible, but perhaps also as divine insurance. 
These religious sites could be extremely elaborate, and one senses a competitive nature among the patrons in demonstrating just how pious they were. Though a universal respect for the Greek pantheon was a given, many cities had particular deities that they saw as their patron god. Pergamon had a famous altar dedicated to Athena and Zeus, but in Alexandria there was the Temple of Serapion, a fusion of Egyptian and Greek mythological elements, and in Iconum, an enormous statue of Zeus was found in a Mesopotamian-style temple. Religious festivals were commonplace, centered around the veneration of a particular god or goddess, and would have musical acts and poetry contests, and in some cases these festivals would be centered around the veneration of the local ruler cult, such as the Ptolemaia. Life in the big city wasn't always just business. There was plenty of recreational centers and beautification added to the locale, usually sponsored by the local ruler to add luster to the city, and by extension their own dynasties. The theater was a staple of any Hellenistic settlement, where the locals could be entertained by the blossoming new comedy movement, which could be often bawdy and relatable to the everyday citizen. The theaters themselves were usually built in some sort of elevated site or hill, and generally could seat around three to 5,000, though some of the larger ones could reach up to 14,000. These amenities weren't exclusively Greek in origin either. The Seleucids and Ptolemies adopted the Persian fondness for paradises, parks and open-air spaces that provided greenery to often arid regions. And in Antioch, the paradise of Daphne was considered the greatest of all, reminiscent of the hanging gardens of Babylon. The Ptolemies were perhaps the most explicit in the creation of city amenities and monuments of excess. In Alexandria, there was a royal zoo, the famous library, the Grand Lighthouse, and a racetrack, among other things. Games and athletic events were a common sight, with events dedicated to boxing, wrestling, sprints, and even chariot racing, though not to the same popularity as it would be in Rome or later Constantinople. These games were a point of pride for some cities, who sought to have them given equivalent honors to such events as the Olympics or Delphic Games, by sending envoys to barter for their recognition. The architecture itself would have elements specifically designed to display the wealth and prosperity of the city, being made of either local materials or the more costly marble, which could be sculpted into statues, reliefs, and fountains, and other objects of beauty. If we have been continually referencing the influence of monarchs in the city, we cannot forget to mention the palace complexes that were built in many of the major cities, perhaps the most direct representation of magisterial power. It seems that any time or another, the palace was always under construction, as previous rulers wanted to one-up their predecessor in terms of the size and scope of their palaces. Perhaps the largest was in Alexandria, which unfortunately is not well attested to in the archaeological record, given that the vast majority of it is either underwater or under later settlements. But we have a description from Strabo who essentially explains that it was a city within a city, taking up approximately one-fourth to one-third of the entire area. As it is to be expected, these palaces were marvels, decorated with the finest pieces of artwork and materials, the better-preserved palace in Pergamon shows wonderfully detailed floor mosaics, and the Roman poet Lucan describes the Alexandrian palace with doors of ebony, ivory, and jewels, ceilings covered in gold, and walls of marble. In contrast to royalty, we have to consider the living spaces of the commoners. I plan to go into far greater detail about the quarters and household in an episode on family life, so this is merely a cursory glance. City dwellers could be stacked in apartment-style complexes, with the poor sometimes being forced to rent rooms that would be on the same floor as other shops. 
Homes that belonged to the middle class were generally modest in size as well, but they had the benefit of their own private areas and even courtyards. These houses were often built with mud brick rather than wood, which would be particularly expensive in regions like Egypt, but it did reduce the likelihood of fire. So how was the chaos of the city managed? The administration of many of these cities was left to their own devices by the Hellenistic rulers, barring particularly important locations or where the kings had permanent residencies. In general, there was the Buletarian, a building where the local council would conduct their business in a system that could be vaguely described as democratic. It may seem contradictory that in an age of monarchies, democracy would flourish, but these councils were often chosen by the people whom they served, and they were quite aware of who truly held the power. Still, this was a prestigious position, and service was divided among a number of groups. The top level would be comprised of the nomophilakis, the guardians of the laws, and the chief magistrates known as the strategoi. Reporting to them would be the ostinomoi, who acted as sort of a public works inspector, making sure that the streets were of a certain width, that the water supply was kept up and the buildup of waste in the sewers and fountains were kept low, and punishing any citizens who did not actively clean up their refuse or misuse the public water supplies. Other positions, such as the Agora Nomoi and the Gymnasiarch, would oversee specific areas of the city. The funding for these positions and for the construction and upkeep of city beautification was relatively limited, at least the funding that was provided directly from the city's coffers. Instead, much of the renovation and upkeep had to be counted on for the donations by wealthy individuals or by the Hellenistic rulers, who would often get special inscriptions thanking them for their generosity. Hey fellow listeners of the Hellenistic Age podcast, we are Dr. G and Dr. Rad. We host a podcast on ancient Rome called The Partial Historians. If you're interested in getting behind the story of Rome and you want to find out what happens to the Greeks once they meet the Romans, join our conversation. You can find us by searching for The Partial Historians or at partialhistorians.com. We're also active on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And now back to the Hellenistic Age podcast. Enjoy the show! It is during the Hellenistic and later Roman period when urban civilization around the Mediterranean in particular would reach its peak. The most populous city in classical Greece was Athens, numbering at a swollen 120 to 150,000 individuals in the 5th century BC before declining considerably in the centuries following, and Babylon itself was well over 100,000 in the 3rd century. By the 2nd century, several cities would breach 100,000, and the largest would be more than double Athens' size. Diodorus Siculus claims that the census of Alexandria in 60 BC registered well over 300,000 free individuals, and estimates suggest that other cities like Antioch or Seleuci on the Tigris were somewhere between 300 and 500,000 as well. It must be noted that these censuses failed to take into account the large number of resident slaves, so the number could be substantially higher. The people that lived in these cities were often culturally and ethnically diverse, understandable given that many of the native subjects of the regions occupied by the Macedonian conquerors usually outnumbered the Greco-Macedonian population. Alexandria had one of the largest collections of Jewish residents outside of Jerusalem with their own dedicated quarter, along with a number of Syrian and native Egyptian communities, and many parts of the Seleucid Empire had predominantly Aramaic-speaking peoples living among them. The amount of these individuals that actually were citizens to that particular city was often quite small. In contrast to Rome, 
The Greek polis were always extremely reluctant to hand out citizenship, and the same would be true in the Hellenistic period, though to a lesser extent. Would-be citizens had more opportunities to acquire it, such as in the form of payment in talents of silver, and therefore leaving it exclusively to the wealthy, or a sort of halfway status known as a metic, or better described as a poroikoi. The metic was a classical term to reference the foreigner who was granted rights equivalent to a citizen. But in the context of the Hellenistic age, this changed to peroikoi. These were required to pay a special head tax, but in return, they were granted legal protection and allowed to actively participate in the commercial enterprises of the city, but weren't given the political privileges of a full citizen. This undoubtedly arose due to the fact that movement between these regions was far more commonplace, attracting foreign traders and settlers on a scale hitherto unknown, and pragmatism allowed these cities to benefit from the increased revenues, while in return those possessing the status of paroikoi felt a greater sense of belonging. There were, however, a number of problems that arose due to the rapid urbanization and population growth of some of these enormous settlements. Until the modern era and the development of vaccinations, antibiotics, and an advanced understanding of hygiene, the city was functionally a biological death trap, a hotbed of infectious diseases and parasites thanks to a combination of close quarters living, greater mobilization, and inefficient waste disposal. Many of the studies I am relying upon are focused on the period of the Roman Empire, but I believe it is quite applicable to the Hellenistic world as well, given that Rome shared a very similar urban culture, and there are some maxims regarding demographics and disease that can be applied rather universally. For instance, tainted water sources frequently resulted in outbreaks of dysentery and cholera that ravaged both the young and the old, and the refuse accumulated by the urban dwellers, regardless of efforts to clean it up, resulted in a vicious cycle of pests and vermin, generating further diseases and parasites like roundworm or schistosomiasis. These immunological stresses that are so prevalent in ancient urban life, in conjunction with questionable nutritional habits, result in an outrageous mortality rates for children. These immunological stresses that are so prevalent in ancient urban life, in conjunction with questionable nutritional habits, result in outrageous mortality rates for children. Some estimates suggest between 20 to 30% infant mortality rates within the first few years for ancient Greece and Rome, with the number leaning much higher for those in urban environments, and those that did survive were often smaller in stature and generally unhealthier. Some scholars believe that the city was functionally a population sink, requiring great amounts of immigration to at least equal out the birth and death rates. In times of siege warfare, all of these problems were greatly amplified, as was the case in classical Athens during the Peloponnesian War. The amount and variety of people living within these cities could also result in tension and mistrust between different groups, often resulting in outbreaks of citywide violence. The Alexandrian mob was pretty notorious for its riots throughout most of the city's history, spurred on by cultural and religious conflicts, such as the killing of a sacred cat, according to Strabo. Crime itself was probably commonplace, even with the presence of guards, night watches, and military garrisons, and the smell of waste was almost assured, especially in areas of butchers and textile producers, though there were public ordinances that specifically prohibited private households from letting their waste spill out and pile up on the streets in front of their homes. I believe it is time to discuss the economic side of the Hellenistic city, 
But I want to put it up front that this is not going to be an extremely in-depth look at the Hellenistic economy. That's a subject that deserves its own little special topic episode. So what I'm presenting here is more of a general idea. The rapid production of cities during the early Hellenistic period came at an enormous financial cost to the rulers who initiated it. The majority of it was paid through the vast treasure reserves built up by the Persian Empire. And though the extent of monetization and the benefits that the Macedonian conquest produced has been under criticism over the last few decades, it cannot be denied that this circulated a lot of money around the landscape. Construction projects and beautifying the city attracted builders, architects, and artists, employing various forms of wage labor, and, notably, large amounts of slaves. As we've discussed already, there is the Agora, the dedicated market that allows individuals to sell their wares, and given the increasingly connected and cosmopolitan world, the tastes of the elite would also begin to change, increasing the demand for foreign products such as silk from China, pearls, rubies, and spices from India, gold jewelry, you name it. In the city itself, there were areas where tradesmen and women plied their craft, some in specially dedicated buildings that would serve as a production center for various goods like textiles, arms, and armor. To set up a workshop, the artisan would need to purchase the building outright, and oftentimes they could be sharing space with private residencies, employing both paid labor and slaves. The latter group is something to note, as it has been considered by many scholars that slavery as a whole increased in size and scale during the Hellenistic period, mainly because slave-owning as an institution was more commonplace in Greek society than it was in much of the former Persian Empire. The extent of the increase is probably not as great as it once thought it was, but the demand of the great cities to fulfill their need for agricultural and factory workers probably didn't help the situation. Harbors were an important consideration for the foundation of the city, partially due to military defense, but also for their role in commercial enterprises. They generally provided enclosed docks for individual vessels, protecting them from the weather or thieves who would seek to make off with the extremely valuable cargo, though usually with some sort of tax or customs duty. The premier harbors of the Hellenistic world included the likes of Rhodes and Alexandria, who played key roles in the lucrative grain trade across the Mediterranean. There were also smaller settlements along the Red Sea that would be hubs for trading with foreign nations like the Mauryan Empire in India and the Nubian Kingdom in Africa, such as Ptolemaeus Theron. These harbors would facilitate the movement of peoples and attract traders from all over the world to the city, looking to use the faster transportation of an ocean or sea-going vessel versus an overland route, and so they can ply their wares. The enormous populations of some of these cities also presented a problem in keeping them well supplied and fed. The orchards and farms that surrounded the countryside were not usually capable of entirely meeting the needs of some of these megalopolises. We have many inscriptions and papyrus fragments constantly concerned about the grain supplies of the city, and many of the most important royal donatives were regarding grain shipments. Evidence from a Ptolemaic royal decree suggests that there was a severe penalty if the regular supplies of olive oil and grain to Alexandria were not delivered on time by the responsible individuals. And one of the inscriptions thanking the Seleucids for a donation of grain shows the astronomical cost in doing so. Different regions had different requirements, as not all locations could be self-sufficient in regards to olive oil or wine depending upon the climate and soil of the region, or perhaps native cultural traditions. For instance, beer was the drink of choice in Egypt, and thus wine was a great commodity to the Greeks of Alexandria. The role of the city in the Hellenization of its nearby populations remains controversial. As I hope to have shown you with my many examples, 
The traditions and practices of the native peoples were never entirely overtaken by the Greek culture brought by the Macedonian conquerors. In some cases, the cities themselves would adopt native traditions. In Seleucia, we can see a mixture of Mesopotamian and Greek architecture, and native languages were still being spoken in the markets. However, the existence of the Hellenistic city had reduced the importance and influence of formerly grand cities like Babylon, Memphis, and even Athens. Political power was in the hands of the Greeks, and Greek political power was centered in the city. So, in the words of the late Professor Getzel M. Cohen, Perhaps it was better to say that the non-Greek peoples had to express their tradition through a Greek medium, using their language and institutions that were largely absorbed through the contact with their Hellenistic cities. Ironically, as the Greek world expanded outwards, the understanding of oneness, or oikumene, shared between the many Greek settlements and cities across the Hellenistic world were crystallized. City-states would begin to cooperate more as they saw themselves as part of a greater collective Greek cultural identity sharing envoys and honors between one another. The polis as a whole had experienced an overall loss in their political autonomy, and their relationship was generally bound up with that of royal monarchy, which had been hitherto unknown in the world before Alexander the Great. But this was less of an issue as is to be expected. Cities saw the benefits from the patronage of a monarch, and a ruler was pleased at the divine honors that were elected and the relative peace that would come with it. It wasn't a universally beloved thing, mind you, as can be attested by the reluctance and resistance of the cities on the Greek mainland to be under Macedonian domination, but it was relatively amicable for the vast majority of time. As the kingdoms of the Hellenistic world faded away or were conquered, their cities left varying degrees of influence on the powers that immediately succeeded them. In the Asian territories, this influence was more muted. The Parthians had incorporated several elements of Hellenistic city life, but it was more ornamental rather than functional. And in Bactria and India, there appears to be little, if any trace at all, of Greek city culture. Several of the Seleucid cities gradually faded away in favor of new settlements or were outright destroyed, as was the case of Iconum and Seleucia on the Tigris. In the Western territories, it was a completely different story. The conquest by the Roman Republic had resulted in the incorporation of Hellenistic urban culture that continued to dominate the eastern half of the Roman Empire for hundreds of years afterwards. Alexandria and Antioch would remain prosperous, and would essentially become the second and third most important cities after Rome herself until the 7th century AD, almost a thousand years after they were founded. Despite their stereotyping by the Romans as centers of decadence and soft living, there was clearly an admiration for the beauty of these locations, as can be seen in the writings of the geographer Strabo, and the Romans themselves understood the strategic and economic importance of these regions. Cities like Alexandria, Antioch, and Ephesus served as important economic and commercial hubs that would help give rise to the first Silk Roads era, where a trade network stretching from Rome to Han China would emerge between the 2nd century BC to the 3rd century AD using many of the Hellenistic cities as stopping points. And so, I think this is a good place to stop our discussion on the Hellenistic city. As ever, I encourage you to visit the show notes for this episode on my website if you want to learn more about this topic and check out my bibliography. We will be returning back to a narrative the next episode, as we will cover the reign of Antigonus Gonatus of Macedon. I hope you've enjoyed what you've been listening to. And if you're looking to support the show, consider leaving a review or donating to my coffee page. As a reminder to those still listening, I have sent messages to the winners of the bookmark giveaway as of today, so the contest is now officially over. 
there probably will be more giveaways in the future, so don't fret if you didn't win. In any case, until next time, happy holidays, and you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast.